Welcome to the podcast. Following the flooding disaster that the Fraser Valley went through last year, what is being done to make the region resilient to climate disasters in the future? And the drama that is Tesla and Twitter. We'll get into it with a man who's written a book on Elon Musk. But first, Dr. Teresa Fowler, Assistant Professor of Education at Concordia University of Edmonton, on Hockey Canada reopening an investigation into a 2018 sexual abuse scandal. Corporate partnerships for Hockey Canada collapsed, fell apart after allegations around a sexual abuse scandal involving their world junior team in 2018 surfaced. There has been a lot of scrutiny of Hockey Canada and how they failed to deal with the case and address abuse issues in general. My next guest is a professor at Concordia University of Edmonton. She's published an article that says it's time Hockey Canada deal with its sexism problem from the foundation up. Joining me now is Teresa Fowler. Good morning, Teresa. Hi, good morning, Raji. So Hockey Canada's CEO, Tom Rennie, uh, has said the alleged incident committed by members of Canada's 2017-2018 U-20 men's world junior team was, quote, unacceptable and incompatible with Hockey Canada's values and expectations. And you wrote, no, it's completely on brand. What did you mean by that? Well, First, you know, thank you for having us on the show and thank you for opening up this conversation because it's one that has been long overdue. And that's what we're saying here when we disagree with um, Rennie's quote there that this incident is unacceptable and incompatible with Hockey Canada's values and expectations because from our research, this is exactly what is happening within hockey culture is this systemic objectification of women misogyny, you know, all of these outcomes of a hyper-masculine identity, which is expected and almost groomed into these players since a young age. And what they learn is they learn how to be silent, right? They learn how to respect the bro code, respect the locker room code. And what that does is that insulates all of these conversations that ought to be happening outside of the dressing room to hold people accountable to say, you know what, it's not cool that you share pictures that your girlfriend sent to you. And you know what, it's really not cool that all of these men entered into this um, hotel room. Yeah, I have to admit in this article that you co-wrote that that line, seeing it from Hockey Canada, that these what happened is unacceptable and incompatible with Hockey Canada's values. It made me go, oh, really? Well, where is Hockey mm-hmm. Canada? Where has Hockey Canada demonstrated these values? Where are we seeing mm-hmm. that? Where, where are the receipts on that? You also wrote that being a good teammate means being silent. And certainly the culture of shaming someone for speaking up, that whole uh, telling on someone, it's still the norm. And we see that in so many aspects of cultures right mm-hmm. down to to you know these news stories about high schools where people see someone being bullied and they say nothing mm-hmm. how does this this silence uh, operate in hockey canada and on what level well from our understanding and that's one of the issues with these organizations like hockey canada like the national hockey league is that they're intentionally impenetrable Uh, us researchers who want to do work with these organizations are really kind of shut out of them. And so what we want to do is really call into question these slogans, right? Hockey is for everyone or, you know, Hockey Canada's um, Hockey is for Girls that say, you know, we are doing these things to bring everyone in. And yet 
they covered up a sexual, alleged sexual assault, right? We hear players who have been writing for the Players' Tribune um, talking about racism, you know, Kim Aliu's piece about racism, Corey Hirsch's piece about mental health, uh, Ryan Kessler, who was on uh, 60 Minutes, talks about playing through pain. We know these things are happening, and yet what we find out, especially if we look back to um, Kyle Beach last fall, here is a man who outed that he was sexually assaulted um, to his coach during a playoff run for the Stanley Cup, and that was set aside in order to win the Stanley Cup. So it's really what is of value for these institutions, and it's not humanity. It's not what it means to be a good human in these dressing rooms. It's how can I better perform to win? Yeah, you mentioned Kyle Beach there, and I think a lot of people thought that him coming forward with his uh, brutal admissions, his honesty was going Mm -hmm. to change everything. Did it? You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I remember that moment I was sitting in my office um, watching his news conference and, you know, tears came to my eyes and I was like ready to call my husband and say, that's it. You know, I'm done. You know, I need to find a new research area um, that looks at masculinity because that was my thought that, okay, we're going to have a reckoning here. And there was nothing. You know, there is nothing that happened. And so I, I, that's my fear with this instance um, with Hockey Canada attending the Standing Committee on Heritage, that there's cautious optimism that something will change. But we only need to look back a few months to see that nothing changed in the NHL. And now the NHL is investigating as well. And it's like, again, it's this insular um, reproductive that only adheres to a certain code and that is not one that combats racism that combats misogyny that combats homophobia like many of our players shared you know um, stories about coaches doing body shots off of 15 year old girls or um, we had one instance where there was a secret santa party and a player was given a coat hanger because his girlfriend had had experienced an abortion and a coach was in the room. Oh, so all of these, exactly, and all of these things are happening in the name of team building, right? That's going to make us stronger. And yet, is it really making us stronger? Because a lot of the folks in our interviews said that they struggled with their identity, right? This is not the man that I wanted to be. This is not the man that I wanted to become. And so they themselves then become stuck. Right. And that's what we're seeing. Teresa, Hockey Canada has suggested that it's a few bad apples. We've kind of heard that rhetoric Mm. before. We all know that it's not the case, that it's more than just a few bad apples. And if one was curious about that, they could ask anyone, uh, any of the players, what happens off ice in those teams. Mm -hmm. So why is it so hard for the institution to look at the problem of sexism, honestly? Uh, I think, you know, it's it's hard to look in the mirror, right? It's hard for any of us to look in the mirror. I mean, all of us are complicit in this. Um, we argue fans are complicit. All of us are complicit. But with respect to the institution, it's hard to say what's been working for us and what's been successful for us is not working anymore. And I think that's the reckoning we're facing more broadly across our culture that these institutions which perpetuate a certain narrative of whiteness, of what it means to be a man, they need to change. 
the rest of us outside, you know, we're here. We'll support you. If these players come out, you know, we'll support you because this can no longer continue. But the institutions need to recognize that society is evolving, so they need to evolve as well. But what's happening is they're holding on tight, right? They blame it on bad apples, and we see that with everyone pointing fingers. And now um, the players have lawyers involved, and they're pointing fingers at Hockey Canada, and Hockey Canada is pointing fingers. It's like, how about you look within? That's where you need to start, and no one seems to want to go there. So you mentioned that this third party will be is looking into the uh, investigate. They're investigating what has happened, but what else do you think they need to do, practically speaking? Well, you know, practically speaking, the feminist in me is like, you need to burn it down, right? We need to like really start again. And I think what we have here is a tremendous opportunity in front of us to open up Hockey Canada. And it's important to know that Hockey Canada should not be the fall person for everything that's wrong in hockey culture. But Hockey Canada faces an opportunity to really change the ways in which they condone hazing, condone these team building rituals. You know, don't let men slide across the ice butt naked, right? That's what par- that's what we were told in our uh, research, some of these rituals. So stop them, you know, and really hold people accountable and listen to players. One of the participants in our study was told by a coach, stop asking too many questions. Just do your job. And, you know, and we need to really create space for dialogues in the dressing room. Parents, when you're picking up your children, what happened in the dressing room today? You know, is that okay? And what do you think about it? That's what we really need to be doing is having these conversations Mm -hmm. that have been opened up from this opportunity. Dr. Teresa Fowler, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you so much. Last Thursday, First Nations and local government met for the Build Back Better Together Forum to find out better ways in preparing for floods. Joining us is Tyrone McNeil, Chair of the First Nations Emergency Planning Secretariat and President of the Stolo Nation, as well as a co-host of the forum. Good morning, Tyrone. Good morning. Thank you for being with us uh, so early on a Sunday. How did you feel with the forum? I felt the forum went really well. The the number of local uh, government leaders and their technicians were really engaged in the conversation that we put on the table. So it made me feel good because it it showed me that we're, we're connected with what some of their priorities are and some of their priorities align with what we're presenting for the day. So it was a really good day. Okay. I know that there were five principles outlined, including reducing risk in climate change, uh, because it was noted that climate change is going to have devastate could potentially have devastating effects on on various regions. There, but of course, we know that they're ultimately unpredictable too. I mean, we just look at how Lytton has been struck uh, yet again by even more fires. So, how is risk going to be managed substantially going forward? But first of all, we need to get away from the like potential risk. There's a number of risks that are coming down the pipe that are inevitable. Inevitable. The November rain event, for example. Yeah. Uh, So it's about recognizing that these are real risks, and the best way to prepare for them is to to get ahead of the game, move move both levels of government from the current post disaster, you know, step in and see what we can do, to some more proactive actions, particularly on resilience. 
particularly around bringing folks together to talk about a larger plan than a single local government plan or a single First Nations plan and take a regional approach. Yeah, by you... doing that, we, we, we bring all of our capacities together, all of our planning together. You know, we've got some pretty bright minds here in the lower mainland of Fraser Valley bring us together and we come up with some pretty good options, pretty good solutions. Okay, yes, you advocate for a regional plan. Why is that? Because the, the, the folks need to recognize what, when one local government or one jurisdiction does something, it, it directly impacts somebody downstream and even potentially upstream. So when you, when you look at it individually, it's just a piecemeal. You have us all competing against insufficient funds. You have us competing with insufficient human capacity across the board. So if we come up with a, a single regional action plan, it connects all of us. It's what do, what do our strategies mean to somebody downstream and what do their strategies mean to us? And then from there, the, the piece I'm really chasing here is once we develop a regional action plan, we be incorporated in the decision-making to implement that plan. We don't need Ottawa, we don't need Victoria making plans that directly impact us. There are going to be really hard decisions to be made, but who better to make them than those of us directly impacted by a climate disaster? Yeah, I want to pick at that a little bit. You mentioned earlier that there are real risks with climate change and disaster. It is inevitable. So let's talk about what could be done in terms of uh, prevention of impact and what, what can be done proactively. What are the big things you, got, you guys looked at? But firstly, we, we know there's, there's over 1,500 kilometers of salmon-bearing water, or salmon-bearing habitat, sorry, salmon habitat, trapped by dikes, railways, roads, and whatnot. So if you open, open those up, you're doing two things. You're enhancing salmon habitat, but you're giving the river some space and some room to grow. Right now, there's some dikes that are immediately on the banks of the river, so the river has no, no opportunity to grow whatsoever. So by opening these old waterways, that the river can increase in volume, increase in capacity, <clears throat> but the, the risk to all of us is, is lowered because it's got a broader floodplain here in, in the lower mainland in Fraser Valley. So that, that's the biggest piece of it. And then related to that is having a conversation with folks. Do you know, do you, do you, know you live in a, in a high-risk floodplain? And if not, here's some things you should be considering. And that, that's going to lead to uh, hopefully local governments having conversations, maybe through their, their ability to zone and allow or disallow activities in certain areas of, within their jurisdiction, that we could start start putting some restrictions on what activities can take place in those highest risk areas because we can't protect them. Those highest risk areas will get wet from time to time. So things can happen, but not everything. Yes. Tyrone, do you think a lot of people, a lot of folks were not aware of the fact that they lived in a high risk area? Well, we certainly heard that from the November rain event when all kinds of farmers in the, the historic Sumas Lake had no, no idea they're living in a, in a historic lake. Yeah, And I, I'm really confident that there's a lot more other people out there that, you know, it's a real estate transaction. They're new to the area, they're coming in, they have no idea. And then next time there's a high water, it goes, oh, oh I didn't re- didn't know that. Yeah. So whether, whether that becomes a part of the real estate strategy or not, it probably won't be because it might devalue property. But, you know, there needs to be more public awareness and what the real risks are in terms of where they're located, where their infrastructure is. Yeah, where could that public awareness come from? Where could that education come from, do you think? Well, it's, it's a pillar within the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction. Uh, it, it speaks a lot to the public, a lot to, the, to the, the general population in terms of educating them, in terms of incorporating their, their thoughts and ideas into the regional um, action plan, that, you know, the, the strategy. 
So the, 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 right now they're kind of left out a little bit just by the nature of the old way of thinking by both uh, the province and feds. The new way of thinking by Sendai encourages local participation by citizens, you know, that everybody everybody and anybody, whether you're part of government or not, whether you're part of emergency management or not, if you live in the area, if you work in the area, you need to be a part of the conversation. In order to do that, you need to be aware of what conversations are taking place and when. Yeah, one of the solutions I understand was also to buy out some homes. But the, the, depending where the property is, the infrastructure is, that does need to be on the table. We, we took a look at one example in New Zealand where the, a local government bought out 5,500 properties because they couldn't afford to go back in to, to remediate after the floods every two or three years. So that was quite a, quite a like a shock in the pocketbook, a short term. But over over the time, they're saving hundreds of millions. You know, they'll recoup that money and more by allowing the, the, their river to swell in those areas, not have a negative impact on real estate and whatnot. So we don't have to buy up anybody and everybody here in the valley and lower mainland, but it has to be put on the table to take a look at. What can we protect? Is it worth protecting? Or should we look at other options such as buying people out and encourage them to live a little bit higher up and towards the mountains and whatnot? What do we protect and what is worth protecting? That's such an important question. I saw that the city of Abbotsford has approved $2 billion towards moving dikes. I'm wondering what you think of how the overall uh, funding outlook appears now. Well, right now it's piecemeal. It's hodgepodge. It's competitive. Abbotsford put out a a pretty robust request for the $2 billion. Well, what does that take away from other regions who who need protection or need support or, or need opportunities to be more resilient as well? So the, the moving flood, sorry, moving dikes back is definitely an option because many of them are simply too close to rivers. The rivers need a chance to grow a little bit. But ultimately, in, in our view, like one of our take or one of our, one of the things we presented last week was reconciliation, and I raised it in such a way that when is a plan a plan? We, we've got the Declaration of Rights and Indigenous Peoples Act here in BC. If local government includes local First Nations and puts a, a strategy together, I, I'd call that a plan. If a local government ignores local First Nations or First Nations don't have the time or or capacity to participate in the local government's plan, I'd I'd say that's more of a suggestion or an option than a national plan. Because folks need to recognize there's a new piece of provincial law and federal law as well that bring us to the table in different ways than we've ever had opportunities to in the past. So really encourage local governments to engage with local First Nations I get it right from the get-go as opposed to any kind of legal action or legal recourse coming down the pipe later. Get it right from the get-go. I'm curious what you think we misunderstand about resilience uh, coming out of November's flooding disaster. Uh, firstly, the, the, there's simply too much effort put on, on protecting humans and protecting real estate. We really hope to bring folks along an understanding that if you look at it from a an ecological perspective from a, a salmon salmon habitat perspective. If you if you look after salmon habitat by creating water storage, opening up these old waterways, you you, you know you're enhancing salmon and salmon habitat. But the the spin off there is that you you are protecting human interests. But from a, a salmon or an ecological perspective, so that's one of the things we want to change a little bit. Is let's look at the the lower mainland with, with a broader lens, not just human interests, human values. Who else is here? Where have they gone? Can we bring them back? Such as salmon, such as migratory birds. There's lots of species at risk here, species in the, in the lower mainland Fraser Valley. 
you know, there's opportunities to rebuild those numbers as well. So uh, what I guess one way to look at is maybe look at things in the less of a Eurocentric uh, lens, Eurocentric model, and look at it as a broader, more holistic, you know, more, more inclusive of non-human interests, and we'll, we'll all do better in the long term. So just kind of change the perspectives a little bit. Tyrone, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you, Henry. Elon Musk has pulled out of a deal to own Twitter, or at least he's trying to. As a result, Twitter is now suing him. How did this all happen? Tim Higgins is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal's San Francisco Bureau, and he's author of the book Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the Century. He joins us on the line for a conversation now. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Let's start out with how this all got started in the first place. Now, I know Elon Musk has dabbled in things other than electric cars, obviously, including a, a solar city amongst other ventures. But why, why that initial move on Twitter? Why did he want to own Twitter? Well, Elon Musk is a power user of Twitter. Uh, it's someplace that for years he's gone uh, in his his free time, which it's hard to imagine a, a guy like Elon Musk having any free time, but he would carve out uh, moments uh, famously when he was on the toilet or uh, between meetings and engage in that world. And it's helped to build his reputation globally. It's helped build a customer base for Tesla. It's helped uh, Tesla avoid having to spend the, the kind of money on TV advertising to get the, the word out about his cars. It's helped him kind of create this image. And it, it he, he basically uh, was watching as the social media world was becoming concerned uh, about misinformation, uh, about uh, uh, the way uh, uh, speech was being handled, and increasingly became concerned that voices were being limited. In particular, when he saw uh, President Donald Trump here in the States uh, get kicked off the platform, um, he was concerned that voices were being silenced. And, you know, here's a guy who had helped build his fortune using that tool as Twitter, and it was very easy to understand that maybe he was concerned that his voice might be canceled. And so he started buying up uh, shares in the company uh, quietly until he amassed uh, enough that uh, he eventually had to go public with it. And it, he, he basically provided the board with a, kind of a choice. Um, he wanted to be on the board. Uh, he wanted to buy the company or he might create his own social media company. So was he ever serious about getting Twitter, though? I remember when it first started just in the rumor mill that Elon Musk wanted Twitter. A lot of people were saying, ah, oh, this is just uh, this is him and his bravado and his, a display of his ego. He's not serious. And then obviously it ended up becoming more serious. But was he not actually ever intending to go through with it? What do you think? A lot of people misunderestimate Elon Musk. They want to think that, you know, he's being frivolous or he's playing a joke. And it's sometimes hard to know because of the way he's communicating or he's acting. Um, but in this case, he did pull together the financing for it. And so, you know, either it's he was serious or it is a massively expensive joke. Uh, and so I think you have to kind of take it seriously given the fact that he's gone as far as he did. Now, what has changed is that the valuation uh, of Twitter dropped dramatically. Yes. Um, you know, the marketplace changed dramatically from when he was willing to pay $44 billion for the company, a massive uh, markup from where it was in the marketplace. Uh, we're on the verge of, or we may already be in a recession, advertising, 
which is where 90% of Twitter's revenue comes from. Uh, the advertising market is being affected. Uh, Twitter is struggling uh, with its user base. And all of a sudden, it looks like maybe Elon Musk was overpaying. And there is some suspicion that he's trying to get the price down or wants to get out of it because he doesn't want to pay this inflated cost. And what about this reasoning that he provided that uh, the company Twitter failed to provide him the data he requested? What do you think about all that? Well, the, the core kind of the crux of the disagreement is that Elon is, is claiming that uh, Twitter was not um, transparent or open about the percentage of, of bots or percentage of fake accounts on its platform. Um, and it's, it's kind of hard to reason with this because for years, Elon has complained about the number of uh, spam accounts, fake accounts, yeah. bots, if you will, uh, because he's a power user and sees this often in his feed. Uh, I've seen uh, research suggesting that he is more likely to see these kind of things than the average user, that his account is just flooded with this sort of stuff. So he's known exactly. about it. And now he's trying to say that, well, Twitter was not uh, upfront with the actual amount. And so it's a disagreement. Twitter would, has said in, for a while, and it continues to say that less than 5% of the accounts are bots. Uh, or 5% of the traffic is bots, and he's saying that's wildly higher than that, and that's where the disagreement is coming from. And, you know, some outside observers are looking at that as a pretext to just try to get out of the agreement, but uh, it's interesting in, in the court filings that Elon's team has filed, he's suggesting that the way Twitter was going about kind of looking at looking for fake accounts was not a very robust uh, way of doing it. Yeah, and what do we know about this uh, go- This going to the Delaware court? A lot has been made about the judge involved and going toe-to-toe with Musk. What do you think about that? Well, her reputation is no nonsense. It's a court, uh, but it's also a, a court that has uh, you know, a reputation for uh, giving uh, companies some leeway. Uh, Elon Musk has experience uh, in this court. Uh, he has been sued. Uh, his companies have been sued there. And he has found um, some some leeway there. The challenge for for Musk from observers of this court is he he's not good. It's going to be very hard. He's going to have to prove that these uh, the information about bots was material, misleading. That this really changes the deal altogether, and that's a very hard thing to do. And this kind of court doesn't necessarily like to, uh, y- you know, do what he is asking to do, that there was some sort of material breach. And so it's going to be an uphill battle for him. But the, the real thing that might be going on here, people who have uh, observed these kinds of uh, negotiations over the years, oftentimes uh, a buyer and a seller come to some disagreement at this point in these transactions, and they use the kind of litigation uh, to force an, a settlement or a negotiation. So Elon's endgame here might be trying to get the price of Twitter down to make it more palatable to him or to get the, the, the walkaway cost uh, more palatable. He, he would have to pay money to get out of the deal. And the leverage he has here is that Twitter wants this to, to end as quickly as possible. And he's going to want to try to drag it out because this is a cloud over their head. It's, it's hard for them to, to go about business as usual when this is occupying their time. And uh, Elon here is the world's richest man. He can, you know, tie them up in court and 
and make their life miserable. So it's, this is a game of brinksmanship, and he's a very hard-nosed negotiator. And how could Twitter even resuscitate itself if Twitter lost? The, if, the, the challenge for Twitter is as they try to kind of re-pivot for this world. They, they were in the process of, of trying to, to make the business more robust. They've been under criticism for years. People look at Twitter as it punches above its weight reputationally, especially among journalists and politicians, uh, especially in the U.S., uh, kind of attracting uh, more attention than it actually uh, delivers probably among uh, normal users. Uh, uh, investors will look at the likes of Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and, and TikTok and Snap, and these are capturing uh, young people's imaginations, whereas, uh, you know, Twitter's in, comparatively small. And so, some investors look at that as an opportunity that if they could just get under the hood and, tw- and, and tinker, that maybe this could be a more valuable property. That's what Elon Musk uh, it was basically selling, that he could turn it into a powerhouse, make it into kind of one of those apps on your, your iPhone that would rule them all, maybe a, in payments and, and kind of be the center of your digital life. But you know, this is something that's very hard to do. Uh, and so the challenge for Twitter now is to assure advertisers that it's uh, a valuable property that you can reach users and to kind of create the content uh, or create the environment for users to create the content that attracts attention. Continuing our conversation about Elon Musk and Twitter with author Tim Higgins. He's written a book, Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the Century. Tim, you're also a reporter at Wall Street Journal San Francisco Bureau, but I am so curious about what led you to dedicate a chunk of your life to researching and writing all things Elon Musk. Yeah, well, I spent a long time in Detroit writing about the automotive industry before moving to Silicon Valley to write about the tech industry. And it, I arrived in the Valley at a point in time which was very interesting and exciting, kind of the marriage between the hardware world of cars and the software world of, of the Valley. And, and Tesla really embodied that in a very dramatic way. And the, the, the idea of Tesla was to, to kind of show the world that electric cars uh, could be cool, that they could be sexy, that they could be pragmatic before that. Uh, really, there was uh, always this idea of electrification of the automobile, but how to do that was in question. And most people thought of an electric car as something like a golf cart. And you know, I think you and I both can agree that a golf cart just really isn't very sexy. Yeah, there was so much pomp and, and promise around Tesla and what it could do back then. Some of it has come true, but then some of it was just Musk uh, talking big dreams uh, and big promises mm-hmm. that he couldn't deliver on. How does this tw- this current Twitter case that's going on now, how does it uh, impact Tesla, do you think? Well, it, it's, it's a challenge for uh, Tesla. Uh, Elon would probably disagree with that, but uh, the issue is there is only so much time in the day. Elon Musk has yet, event, has yet to invent the ability to create more hours on the clock. And he spends his time uh, between SpaceX, his rocket company, which has the ambitions of going to Mars, and Tesla. Those are really, between those two companies, that occupies maybe 80 or 90% of his time. And all these other companies, whether it's uh, Neuralink or the Boring Company or whatever, uh, really are almost hobbies to him, uh, something um, that he kind of dabbles in, uh, he is invested in, and, and kind of has a vision for, but aren't taking his day-to-day 
uh, bandwidth. Uh, the question of Twitter is, where does that fit into the portfolio? Uh, it's, it's clear uh, that Twitter, to do what he wants, would require a huge lift. Um, uh, and he does not traditionally like uh, the kinds of things that Twitter does, whether it's advertising or marketing. He's, he likes to think of himself as an engineer. He likes to get into the nitty-gritty on engineering issues. So he might uh, kind of look forward to the idea of, of, of debating how to do algorithms or uh, the kind of the under-the-hood kind of things at Twitter, but it's hard to imagine he's going to be too excited to deal with uh, the advertising community and the kinds of things that are, are needed uh, when you're really a content platform. Um, when he's talked about how he would uh, handle uh, offensive content on Twitter uh, in the past, uh, he, he essentially wants there to be a speech on there that people would find disagreeable, um, you know, other platforms um, have struggled with that kind of uh, uh, philosophy and, and really has created a lot of drama and a lot of challenges around the world as uh, these powerful institutions uh, uh, kind of deal with their role in modern life. What do you think his endgame was with Twitter and this whole, uh, what do you think his ultimate aim was with free speech? Well, you know, I... I yeah, I'm going to take him at his word that he was, you know, interested in the power of the platform and protecting it as a as a place for a town, to be a town square to, to air uh, speech. Uh, you know, he's an investor in Twitter, so you know his bottom line is attached to that. But uh, the real uh, thing here for Elon Musk is he's been able to reach people around the world and use Twitter as a tool. Um, to create um, kind of his personality, his his companies. It's helped make him the world's richest man because of his ability to communicate with the masses. So if Twitter goes away as a tool, if it's no longer successful, if he, if he can't reach people with it, uh, that hurts him. That, that hurts uh, his companies. And so in a lot of ways, him kind of tinkering with Twitter is not only a risk uh, for his, him as an investment, but it's a risk for him and his ability to reach the world. People have long seen uh, Elon Musk as kind of technologically prophetic, a dreamer that made things happen. Has our perception of him in general changed since this whole Twitter thing started? It, it, Elon Musk, uh, one of his greatest attributes, really, especially if you look at Tesla, the, the car company as an example, is his ability to sell his vision of the future, uh, not only to customers, which was very important, but more importantly to investors and raise the billions and billions of dollars over the course of many, many years to keep the company afloat until it could become a viable car company. Um, and that, that is often kind of overlooked. He would like to kind of be, have be seen as an engineer, um, as this great engineer and creator, but it's really his ability to sell his vision, to be that uh, person that now a lot of people think is a visionary or as kind of selling the future. Uh, this mess with Twitter uh, perhaps uh, hurts him in business circles uh, in, in, in the way that uh, traditional business people look at. Kind of, he's breaking norms here. But among some of his fans, this is just Elon being Elon, and that is part of his charm 
among his supporters is that he's very raw, that he is in a lot of ways in their minds authentic. He is saying the kinds of things and doing the kinds of things you don't see uh, traditional uh, CEOs do. You don't see captains of industry engage uh, online in such a personal and oftentimes uh, messy way. Yeah, and you often don't see the heads of companies saying things as big as everyone's going to be driving one of my vehicles. They're going to be X amount of dollars. They'll all be $30,000 only. Everyone can afford them and this kind of thing. Um, we'll have self, fully functioning self-driving cars. Uh, but huge promises, but he's able to make good on many of them. Um, you have interviewed people that have been in Musk's closer circle. What is your grasp of what he's really like as uh, the rest of us uh, just take stabs in the dark and guesses at what his character is really like? Well, it's interesting. He is, uh, you, you talk to people who've worked with him closely over the years, and it's, it's mixed. People want to think that Elon is either black or white, but in a lot of ways, he's gray. Uh, on certain days, he's the hero. On certain days, he's the villain. And one of the common things that I hear from people who have worked with him is that at first, they're very much attracted to him and his vision. And he sells this future world that they want to be part of, either trying to save Earth uh, with electric cars or uh, save humanity by going to another planet. Uh, these things are very attractive to people. And he runs his companies in a way that are different than other companies. They're trying to do things that are new and hard, and that's thrilling to people. But it's also really hard. And oftentimes, uh, you know, the best laid plans don't go uh, well there. And he, Elon Musk, has a history of eating people up in a lot of ways. And at one point, I counted over the course of maybe 18 months, he went through uh, more than 50 vice presidents or higher ranking executives at Tesla, uh, people who, you know, were very bright, who either lost faith in or they uh, grew tired of working with him and, and departed. And that kind of turnover indicates that it's not easy working for Elon Musk. As we've heard, it's not easy working for a lot of the uh, bigwigs. Tim, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been very interesting. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.